Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's topic, deciding between two good candidates. Today, Mark and I are going to talk about how to decide between two good candidates in a hiring situation. Here we go. Is it true on this cast that we're going to tell everyone who's trying to decide between two candidates uh, whom they should pick? Is that what we're going yes. to do today? Yeah, de- definitely pick the shorter one, right? <laughs> yeah, right. We are absolutely that good. <laughs> and if you'll just submit the two candidates, we'll tell you very quickly which one you should pick. Um, no, we are not going to say in every circumstances, pick A versus B because of these five reasons. That's a little bit beyond our reach yet, but maybe next year after they invent 3D television. So today we're really going to talk about the factors that would go into making the most effective decision on whom to hire. Yeah. And also walking through a simple process for the decision, which of course comes out of the interview results capture meeting. And and part of the reason we, we have to talk about factors is because so many managers make the wrong choices. They make sense. The choices that many of us use you know, if we've got two candidates that we like, it makes sense to say, okay, we'll look at this and we'll look at that. But those aren't the ones that work based on what we've seen in the marketplace. So we need to cover the factors because once you learn the factors, it's usually much easier to make the right decision. And I know people are asking this question. Why are we talking about this now in a recessionary economy? I mean, doesn't that, I don't know, why, why are we doing that? Yeah. If the economy's hot, you don't get as many chances to interview because there's a lot of demand and supply hasn't caught up. And so, of course, prices go up and you don't get to interview as many people. It's really hard when the economy is hot because people can find great jobs and keep them and and barter for higher salaries and so on. But but in in a recessionary economy, you're much more likely to come across multiple qualified candidates. Again, it's just supply and demand. There are a lot of people losing their jobs. Uh, you know, we're predicting this early, of course, but in 2009, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to be good people. That's the difference between a layoff and a, and a firing, right? A firing is usually for cause and a layoff is, is uh, unrelated to the individual in many, many cases, not all, but in many, many cases, the vast majority And so there are good people that would not normally be on the market simply because companies are admitting to overhiring sometime in the past. So the talent market has a high supply, which means there are more applicants for in a recessionary economy, a lot less jobs. And so you're going to you're going to end up with this situation more often in a down market. Good. So just the old supply and demand curve. There is a supply and demand curve for talent. There's a macro one and there's a micro one and they are different and it depends on where you are. It depends on geography. It depends on the company. It depends on the industry. But if you spend a little bit of time thinking about it and paying attention to numbers of people who come in for interviews and number of resumes and so on, you can pretty get a pretty good rough estimate, sort of a proxy for how the talent market is affecting your company and in your neck of the woods. And it, you know, it takes a couple of years to get it, but once you get it, it helps you a great deal in terms of making decisions about hiring and growing your organization and how, how many new sources you have to create based on where you think the supply and demand curve are at that particular time. Good. Okay. So we're going to talk about today um, a set of factors to help decide between two good candidates. 
in this hiring situation. And we're going to talk a little bit about a process for getting to, to the decision. So what are the key points we're going to cover yeah, today? We have five key points. The first one, we're going to go in a little bit more detail than we perhaps normally would. Okay, I take that back. We're known <laughs> yeah. for detail. Um, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a refresher on the inter- result, interview results capture meeting. We're going to go into a little bit more detail on it than we did in our original cast because we want to talk about interviewing against the standard about not asking for comparisons, the fact that you get to make the decision, other, other people are giving you recommendations, and, and the importance of asking for that yes, no, hire, don't hire versus uh, getting people's rankings. And then two, three, four, and five are really simple. When it comes to hiring, it really is your call. And that's a mistake people make when a lot of people interview. And the three specific recommendations relative to choosing between two good candidates is you always weight the core responsibilities more heavily. You weight your team fit more heavily. And despite what many managers say and think and act upon, you tend to reduce the weighting of the importance of future abilities. Too many managers think, well, if I've got two people who are can- who are qualified, I should look at who has the best future. And in fact, there's no evidence that any of us are terribly good at predicting the future of any candidate we hire. Good. Okay. So the interview results capture me. Now, we did this cast, what, back in beginning of April, May 2008, something like that? Yeah. So, yeah it was the early, part, early half of the year. Yeah. And a lot of folks has, have told us that they really think it's one of those classic manager tools cast in the sense that nobody does it, but those managers who have figured it out really um, – It works. It, it <laughs> works, right? They, they yeah. find that they hire much more effectively. They get much better people, and they have less of the, oh, uh, oh I hired this person, but really I wish I hadn't. Now I'm stuck. You know what it is, I think – I think we can call this a foot dragger cast um, interview results capture being a, a foot dragger cast, because it's one of those podcasts that follow the idea that so many of us have a tendency to do when we're involved in some sort of process that we haven't been taught that that's not codified in very detailed ways at so many places. And, and the foot dragger cast goes by the, the idea that name because we put our best foot forward. In other words, we know it's important to give a good, tough interview. Many don't, but for those of us who do, that's great. But then we don't know what to do after that, and so it feels like after we're putting our best foot forward, we drag the other one behind it, which is not really a plan for success. And it's frustrating for you and I because if folks knew this stuff, they'd be better. It's not hard to know this stuff. You may not believe in it, but this stuff works. And if you're not doing interview results capture, if you don't know what to do after you interview somebody, if you think the interview is the end-all and be-all, that's too bad, and we want to help. A lot of us know that we've got to interview fully and completely good, good, but some of us don't know what to do next. Right. And so the interview results capture meeting is really about laying out a process for managers to capture input from all the other interviewers, right. managers or not, regarding their experience with the candidate during their interviews. And this is the part I uh, I love, the, the very first thing. We're sitting in this meeting. We have, we'll say we have five or six folks in the meeting room with us doing this interview results capture meeting. And the first thing we ask people to say when they outbrief their thoughts on the candidate is they start out with a hire, don't hire recommendation. Right. Which you don't find very often. (laughs) It just concentrates the mind, right? 
young people and people who are not experienced in talent processes and hiring and so on and talent development tend to go into the meeting and say, we're just going to chat about this person. And if somebody else gave them a great interview and says three or four things that really impress us, we're going to say, oh, okay, I guess you should go with him. But but that, of course, tends to invalidate the time we spent with the candidate. And and the fact that everybody knows they have to come in with a hire and don't hire uh, recommendation concentrates one's mind. Absolutely. And, and another thing, it's also a developmental thing. Now, we have a future cast. It'll come out sometime in the next year or two about how to have your directs interview with you for a position on your team. In other words, they will interview somebody who would become your peer or become their peer. And you can actually use the interview results capture meeting as one of their development uh, processes, because if they interview 10 people, you can compare what their hire and not hire recommendations were against the hiring history of particular people and whether or not that person was successful. Yeah. A very interesting scorecard. Exactly. And look, since hopefully everyone has heard me say it a few times now, although still no one has sent me an email, that the most important thing managers do or hire, do is hiring, wouldn't it make sense the most important development you give your directs is teaching them how to hire well? Yeah, that's part of the reason for the interview results capture meeting. Uh, okay, and, and there's one other point, of course. We do the hire and no hire. That's what we start with. And then we also ask every person at the meeting to talk about interpersonal fit, cultural fit, skills fit, and then technical fit. And the idea is, look, we hope everyone who's listening is using that process. We know it's not true, but we hope it. But knowing that it's not true, we want to touch upon a couple of unspoken points from that cast because the interview results capture meeting is the place where you realize, wow, I've got two good candidates. And the interview results capture meeting teaches you that they're not just good because somebody likes them. They're good because they're good. And so we ought to be clear about the underlying purposes and perhaps invisible uh, currents in the interview results capture meeting. And that's why we're covering it first. Yeah, exactly. And I think our, our, our first point, we've got to talk about the idea that folks get into one of these meetings and we do this kind of round robin and we discuss, we, we talk about who liked whom and, and we compare each other, each candidate to the other and we really try to get a consensus as to who the best of those might B, that, in our experience, is a sheer road to disaster. Yeah. When we interview, we always compare to a standard as opposed to fellow applicants. Now, look, this is going to break down for some of you because they're going to say, what's the standard? And I'm going to say, well, it depends on the individual interviewer. But look, here's the problem. Once you start comparing candidates to one another as opposed to a standard, we immediately start seeing candidates as being in a race. And it's normal. It's not wrong. It's normal. But what we want to do then is we want to pick a winner. And that is what we would call in decision theory, a relative distinction. Okay. We're looking at who is better. Think about that for a moment. We're looking at who is better and it's a relative distinction. Right. If you were looking for runners to run in a race and it was me and three of my friends and I was only slightly faster than them, that would be a really bad standard because <laughs> we, <laughs> we'd always lose, right? Right. You know, the the best of me and my friends who, who, who can't run to save our lives, that, that doesn't make a good, um, good set of applicants. Yeah. Even worse, if you're using a relative distinction, remember that every interviewer is coming up with their own set of relative distinctions. It might be okay to use a relative distinction model 
if in fact there was one standard to compare them to, but there's not because we're all measuring different things at different times with different questions in an interview, unless you're using a really effective interview creation model. And think of it this way. When you want to improve quality, one of the first things we all have to do when we want to improve quality is reduce variability. If all of our interviewers are using their own criteria, comparing candidates to one another and to our own criteria, we essentially have two criteria. And that's just more variability. And and when you're talking about people, you might as well multiply any variability by, a, you know, to the third, fourth power because it's people. And it depends on whether or not we had a good phone call or text message or Twitter right beforehand. Not that we would send a Twitter, a tweet, excuse me. Look, effective interviewers eliminate relative rankings. It's not fair to say we have an objective ranking, but we can say it is standards-based. And the standard is very simple. Based on the manager and what he or she, or the interviewer, based on what he or she believes the job to be, the standard is, in the mind of that person, since all interviewing is inherently subjective, the question is, do I believe this person can do the job or not? And if they can do the job and they meet other criteria, I believe they should be hired. Even if everyone has their own slightly different view of the standard, one can assume that if they're comparing individuals to that standard, that's only one variable. Does the candidate meet the standard or not? And so you reduce the variability, you prove outcomes by saying, hey, would I hire this person or not? Based on what I know and what I've seen and what I think, do I believe this person will be competent in this job at this time? And, you know, that that's the first mistake that untutored, untrained uh, managers make is they just want it to make it a race. And if you think it's a race and then you go into an interview results capture meeting with a bunch of other people who act as if it's a race, we tend to get lowest common denominator thinking, which is not effective. Right. So it's it's very possible that you could go into one of these meetings and everyone turns in a relative ranking, it may be very well that four of the five interviewers gave candidate number one top scores, but would not, in fact, hire the candidate if they were to have to decide. Right. It's the difference of who's the best versus is anyone good enough? Right. Yeah. Their their relative rankings would still be accurate and valid. Yeah. Yet, it wouldn't be effective. (laughs) It wouldn't be accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And therein lies the danger. Yeah. Yeah. So look, it's not a relative ranking. You compare against the standard. Would I, would I not hire this person? Now you might say, wait, I don't think I can trust my junior people to make that distinction. Well, you better, because if they're not going to ever do that before they actually have the big responsibility to make the entire choice themselves, they're not going to be very good at it. So you have to train them. But the beautiful thing about that, as we'll talk about in a minute, is that their input is not binding to you. It's a recommendation. But the recommendation comes in a form that you can use, which is hire or don't hire. Okay, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, look, we said it's not relative. We compare against the standard. What that means is do not ask interviewers for comparisons. We don't compare candidates. We compare each candidate to the standard. Again, if you start comparing there is filtering going on during those interviews. If in the first five minutes, interviewer A decides that candidate number three is not as sharp as candidate number one, which by the way is probably because interviewer A is a high I and she makes decisions in the first five minutes. Whereas if this job requires a high C, that person may take a while to, to really impress someone. 
when interviewer A decides candidate three is not as sharp or not as good as candidate one, interviewer A is much more likely to reduce the number of questions, the number of probes, and the types of questions in an interview. Comparisons inherently change the evaluation that managers and interviewers use with candidates. Since the job isn't changing, any changing standard in an interview is inherently unsupportable. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible and would it be a bad outcome if you interviewed five candidates and everybody said hire every single one of them at this stage of the interviewing process? Well, sure. We've got hundreds of casts to go about the talent uh, process, the talent chain, if you will, in a company. And you can have great screening processes and you can have a lot of candidates. Nothing wrong with having five people that meet the criteria. Now, I might, if I were a consultant and had helped build the process, I might raise an eyebrow and say, hmm, I wonder how hard those interviews were. I wonder how they're interviewing. I wonder if they're following the process and so on. But inherently, I wouldn't, you know, if I knew there was quality at each step in the way, wouldn't surprise me a bit. Good. Okay. So, so at this stage, when you're doing the results capture meeting, we're not making the decision of who to hire. Right. We are simply measuring those can the candidates against a standard. And it would be perfectly okay, assuming that we had appropriate standards for all five candidates to get a yes. Or far more likely they get a no, but yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the corollary. It, it's, it's equally possible that all five would get a no. And that's perfectly acceptable as well. Right. Good. Okay. Yeah, totally. Which goes to our next point, which is the inputs that you get, higher or no higher, are simply recommendations. Yeah. We really feel that only the hiring manager makes a decision of whom to hire. There, there are exceptions, but we generally recommend them be rare. It's not a vote among the interviewers. Right. And in fact, I actually think that when it becomes a relative ranking, people begin to believe it is a vote. They're essentially putting forth a nominee for the job. And because everybody kind of agreed that candidate B was the number one person, she's going to get hired because there are four people telling the hiring manager, yes, yeah, she was best, even though they're probably all seeing her from a slightly different perspective. It's not a vote. I've even seen some managers ask for a show of hands. And that, that actually explicitly makes it a vote. And of course, then you begin to get to, you get to see some of the younger people or the less experienced people waiting to raise their hand, depending upon where they see the, the, uh, the center of mass of, of, of recommendations are on, on given candidates. Again, a vote would apply a relative ranking as opposed to a more objective comparison. Look, it's pretty simple. The reason it's not a vote is whomever we hire is our responsibility. Think about it this way. How far do you think you'd get telling your boss that the new guy isn't working, but it isn't your fault because the managers who interviewed him voted on it and they said this guy was the best. So really, it's their fault. Yeah, I can't recommend that as a course of action. <laughs> so we don't recommend voting or any other system beyond simply those doing the interviewing simply say hire or don't hire. Right. Now, we do think that the other re interviewer's recommendations matter, right? We love that. We want lots of input, but I really do think that most people have a really skewed idea about what decisions are. And I, I think we shared in a cast some point in the last couple of years about a decision is more than a choice. A decision is a choice and a plan to implement the choice. Right. 
but but we give we give way to other people's recommendations. But I've seen this some places, and I understand it. But we don't recommend that you go as far as saying, "Okay, one no vote kills a candidate." Well, I do. You do? Okay. Yeah. I mean, but that's because I choose the people who interview exceptionally well, and I tell them a no vote kills somebody. Uh, and my group tends to be heavily weighted toward the people this person's going to be working with. That said, I don't recommend that initially for most managers. And mind you, you could easily say that and then discover that somebody has been essentially saying no to people that they think would likely get promoted in front of them, which is unscrupulous and unprofessional. And you hope that your choice of the person who they're, who's being, who's being the interviewer, who, who's interviewing, uh, that your choice is better than that. So in general, we don't go quite so far as to say one no kills a candidate. But we do say, in general, those recommendations weigh heavily on a manager decision. So just to be clear, our recommendation at this point for the vast majority of managers who are listening is one no doesn't kill it. Although, if you choose well, these are all the things that too many HR and directors and vice presidents and so on don't teach unexperienced managers. There's a process for this. It'll take us a while to get all the casts out. But choosing the right people to interview is an important choice. And it's a decision because you've got to implement the choice. And if you choose well, once you get good at interviewing, one no can mean um, the kiss of death. Good. Okay. So that's hopefully it's pretty obvious why we recommend that folks simply give a yes, no ranking. Right. Yeah. Again, I I must say it really does. There's an old saying that um, nothing so concentrates the mind as the thought of one's imminent execution nothing so concentrates an interviewer's mind as the thought of having to make a decision, having to make a a clear recommendation rather than just having a chit chat about how much we liked or didn't like candidates. Right. Okay. Now our our point number two in this list is it's your call. Now we've probably beat this to death, but it's your call. No voting, no pawning off the decision on somebody else and some process, you know, the anonymity of this this process where people voted, so therefore I'm not responsible. No, as a manager, you are responsible. There's one person, one person alone that's going to be held accountable for the success of the candidate should you, as a hiring manager, decide to hire them. And that is you. Yep. And like we talked about earlier, some of us would go as far as to have a scorecard of those you've chosen to hire. And those that you've given recommendations to hire and how well they've done, because one of the key talents of a an executive is how well they recruit and hire. Yeah, we've talked before about the uh, about the batting average, and uh, we're going to we're going to give you tools on how to improve that batting average um, in the future. OK, so it's your call. Then the question becomes, right, what is a more effective way than what most of us are doing now? to choose between two candidates who do, in fact, across the board, get higher recommendations. And that's really what the core of this cast is about. We wanted to touch on the interview results capture meeting, because if you don't know that, if you haven't heard that cast, then some of these recommendations would tend to be easily misunderstood. Let's put it that way. So good. And the first mistake that many of us make is assume that once the higher criterion have been set, then we ought to look beyond our must-have list and start comparing candidates based on their abilities in some of the secondary and tertiary areas, kind of the nice-to-have yeah. list, right? Exactly. You you found good, and now you want perfect, right? And, you know, I joke often that, that uh, the second rule of the Army is if it's stupid but it works, it's not stupid. Well, the first rule of the Army <laughs> is <laughs> – you're not Superman <laughs> right? and uh, the bullets will not bounce off of you. And 
So consequently, uh, and by the way, when you write job descriptions, and I think Wendy um, actually talks about this, there are managers who are really good at writing job descriptions that when she gets done, she writes them a note and says, you know, I, I'm your kryptonite because Superman doesn't exist. And even if he did or she did, we couldn't afford him or her. And that's the job description you've written. So yeah, they want, they want this and then they want this and they want this and they want this and they want this. And suddenly it's a quarter of a million dollar your job. The simple fact is what really good interviewers do is when they have a couple of candidates or perhaps more, even three candidates that are really, really good. They look again at those candidates comparison to the core responsibilities of the job. They double down their bet on the core responsibilities of the job, as opposed to saying, let's make it a race based on all the ancillary parts, the nice to have parts. Right. And that's our key point here, which is weigh core responsibilities more heavily. So for example, if you had two sales representatives and both seem or, you know, appear to be quite competent enough to do the job, then some of us might be tempted to start looking at other things like financial analysis skills. Right, right. Because that may be a part of the job, right? Sure. Or collaboration skills yeah. or familiarity with marketing techniques, things, those nice to have things. And that right. is a kiss of death if you do that yeah. too early. Yeah. Because what happens is you choose a person. Remember, you got a higher or not higher recommendation, and then you got some information on their interpersonal skills, their cultural skills, their, their job skills based on the interview, and then also technical skills if those apply. It may very well be that when you look at them, you realize that both of them can do the job, but let's say candidate A is actually stronger at the core at being a sales rep in this case, but candidate B has all this other stuff. And so you say, well, you know, they're, they're both technically meet the criteria, so let's go for the stuff that probably wasn't weighted as heavily in the interview, right? That only I can see based on what I know about the details of the job that perhaps other people don't. And that nice to have stuff is just too often not important enough to make a make a difference, a distinction in a person's ability to achieve results early on when they're hired. Right. And no matter how many other abilities somebody has, if they get hired and they don't do the core of the job well, they're unlikely to ever get to use those other skills in their second or third year on the job because they're going to be expected to be doing well in the core. And if they're not doing well in the core, somebody's probably not going to give them a whole lot of other stuff outside the core. If you're a sales rep, you, you better put up numbers. And if you put up numbers, we might give you some marketing tasks. We might give you some analysis tasks. We might give you some collaborative uh, uh, responsibilities. But we won't give you those things unless you put up numbers. Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for a third baseman, you want the best third baseman you can get, not somebody who's a good third baseman, but yeah, it's pretty good at second base too. Might be able to use them there. That right. doesn't work. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So put it a little bit more bluntly, effective managers review the core responsibilities of the job. After they have the couple of candidates, they look at the, they're both recommended. I think this person can do the job. I think we should hire them. They compare those two candidates. They drill down and they compare them against the core skill areas and determine who is better at the critical core parts of the job. In the example we mentioned a bit ago, candidate one may not have the marketing expertise, the financial analysis skills that the other candidate does, but he has consistently been a number one sales producer, is known for excellent client relationships, and is consistently ranked very high in margin percentage, and it is sales margins and, and customer relationships that are the core of this job. Look, both candidates can do the job, 
But candidate A, in the day-to-day core stuff, notably outperforms the other guy. And maybe B has this other stuff that A doesn't have, but it's unlikely that he'll get a chance to use it as, as quickly as A will. And you could probably train that stuff more easily than you can train the core stuff. Right. But even though candidate B has all that other, you know, secondary good stuff that might come in handy someday if he proves himself, we're still going with candidate A. Yeah, because that word might is really, really big. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Okay. Look, after the initial hire, don't hire recommendation, now we can compare apples to apples. We've got two candidates in front of us, uh, and we're going to compare the apple of one person's core skills to the apple of the other person's core skills. And that's going to be the first discriminator that we look at to decide whom among them we should hire. Okay. Now, after we've done the core skills and really kind of narrowed down on that, is team fit one of those secondary skills that we don't really consider in, in, in our evaluation? Not at manager tools. There are people who would argue with us, but I think we've said it before many, many times. There are two reasons to get rid of somebody. Failure to perform in their core responsibilities and tearing down the team. I see too many managers who don't get to spend time either really building up their top performer or spending enough time to save a lower level performer who they're not communicating well with because they're spending so much time dealing with team conflict. So, we recommend you discount those extra skills that will be nice to have at some point. And after you've looked at core skills, the next thing you look at, if for some reason you still have a a horse race, we recommend that you elevate and pay special attention to how well the perception is the candidate will fit into your team. If you hire a superstar who has to work with others and their superstardom keeps them from being able to work with others, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, the, the superstar, you're really talking about the, the rock star, right? The superstar that thinks they're better than everybody else. Yeah, and can't, exactly. And it can't work as a team in a team. Yeah. yeah. And look, you know what happens? Hey, this guy, she's good. You know, she, she, she is just awesome. And yeah, she's hard to work with. But that's why you're her manager and you'll be good and you'll figure it out and she'll figure it out and so on. I just see too many cases where there's a little bit of a question when it comes to interpersonal or team slash cultural fit. And when you hire them, they assume you know that they're not the ultimate team player. They assume you know they're a little bit of a prima donna. They consider that a strength. Yeah, they're kind of proud of it. you hire them (laughs) essentially validates that that's what you want. Exactly. And then they tend to not only not downplay that prima donna behavior, they stress it. And it creates conflict right away. And suddenly... The parts of the job that they have to rely on other people for don't get done well, and you wonder why they're not performing, and it's because you didn't weight team fit more heavily. Yeah. So compare each candidate to the team, determine who's least likely to cause disruptions, and who's most likely to fit in, be liked, and work well with others. Yep. And and there are people who will argue with this. We are absolutely in the minority here. There are people who will say, nope, I don't do it. I think that's the job of the manager to help them fit in and and so on. And people would say, well, I don't, I don't care whether they're liked or not. I just want to hit them more home runs. Well, you and me both are going to go down the boat on this one because yeah. <laughs> I'm not coming off this point. <laughs> so, okay. So after that, then we still got a tie. So, so really what we need to weigh very heavily now is all the future possibilities. Like this guy, you know, this, he looks like he's going to be a great executive someday, or she looks like she's going to be a super senior manager someday. And we ought to really load up on that right because because you know it's all about the future yeah we've been doing the we've been doing this so long i really do truly know your tone of voice that's 
<laughs> that's, that's sarcastic or ironic or whatever is the appropriate word. Yeah, I, I, I hope I hope our listeners do because every yeah, once in a while I wonder that did, did I think I really meant that? Mm, that's no. what Mike sounds like when he puts his tongue in his cheek. Um, thinking about future abilities, I really think he's got what it takes or she's got what it takes five years from now is a terrible idea. I wish it were not so. I can see the the draw of the idea. Let's build a company for now and for the future. But this choice ends in tears far too often. It's a very simple reason why. You can't predict the future. You can't predict people. So you're not going to be able to predict people's effectiveness in the future. It's a double whammy. Most of us have a terrible ability to in any way accurately predict how someone will be doing in their job in three years let alone if they have the skills now that they're going to need in three years. The market's going to change. The company's going to change. The products are going to change. The service is going to change. The location in which they do it is going to change. Their personal life is going to change. The team is going to change. Their skills are going to change. And quite frankly, it's a plenty enough big job to evaluate them against a higher don't hire standard in an hour or an hour and a half long interview to then have to try to guess at what their future abilities might be. The criteria for getting promoted will not include ever whether we thought someone was capable of it when they were hired. Think about that for a minute. We don't not promote somebody because when we hired them, we didn't think they had the skills. The primary criteria every time for a promotion is how well are they doing in their present job? It's not the only one, but it's the primary one. When we try to guess at the future, we fail most of the time and don't make a bad guess about something we all know we're not really very good at. Don't make that the tiebreaker between two good candidates. Really, the only tiebreaker that matters is how well they do their jobs and fit in with others. Perfect. Good. Well, that's that's been my experience. That's for sure. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, um... You want to wrap it up real quick? Just summarize sure. where we've been. So if you've not listened to the interview results capture meeting, please go back and listen to it. We skimmed over a lot of the process steps describing what happens in the meeting that we put out in the, in the podcast, the agenda for the meeting to make it as simple as we possibly could. And yet these points we made today were really additive to that. We touched on them, but we didn't de- delve into them as deeply as we did today in this cast. Please interview against the standard. And the standard is I recommend this person get hired or not get hired. Don't ask other interviewers to compare. Remember that those inputs that they give you are recommendations and you could choose to go your own way. And it may be based on your interview or something else entirely. And that's why it's so important that we ask for that higher and don't hire ranking. Remember in the same way that other inputs are your recommendations, it's still your call as the hiring manager. Okay. Don't delegate that or blame the process or blame the people. It's your call. It's a decision. Choose and then act. And the three things we recommend about breaking a tie, which is a really bad way to talk about it, is weight those core responsibilities more heavily. Don't reach for new responsibilities. Don't try to find Superman. She doesn't exist. Okay. Weight team fit more heavily because you don't want to hire a prima donna who knows that they're a prima donna and then thinks you validated that. And then lastly, don't reach for their future abilities. Don't hire someone who's pretty good at the core job, but is really great in a future job because all they'll ever be is pretty good in their job. And they probably won't ever get a chance to get the next job because you got to do this job good in order to get promoted. Good advice. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, partner. Uh, We'll see you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
Thanks, everyone. That's it. Hey, if you haven't been to the website lately and noticed that we announced the April 21st Dallas Effective Manager Conference, please check it out. We'd love to have you there for one full day of the Management Trinity. One-on-ones, feedback, coaching, and that silent partner delegation. Oh, and we also cover how to roll it out with your organization. It's going to be a full day packed with great information, and we hope you join us. In the meantime, we'll see you all next week. So long.